0: coming at you from the we dessert studio in houston texas you're listening to the weekly brew with austin staten kevin cook and jeremy paxton it's time to sit back relax and be informed
1: Welcome to episode 39 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Sat, and I'm joined this week by our new Weekly Brewcast team, and that's Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and joining us now is Dolores Lozano. She's replacing Zach Taylor. We did an exhaustive nationwide search uh, for this. Uh, Zach, of course, leaving the program uh, back in December, and uh, we are very happy to have uh, Dolores joining us. But uh guys I- i'm kind of curious uh, you know there was so much stuff going on this week uh kevin i, I know that you were
2: encouraged about you know, being at a high school baseball game on friday night tell us about it yeah that's uh that's not exactly true um i was tweeting as though i enjoyed being there because it was my job to be there and i don't think it's good to put it out that i'm not enjoying doing my job at particular moment. But uh, that game that you're talking about went 10 innings deep. Uh, it was a 2-1 ball game at the end. It was one of the more boring experiences I've ever sat through. And so it kind of cooled me on baseball after having a weird peak last week with the Grand Slam that I witnessed. So I'm not, still not high on baseball. It's still a boring sport. Everything about it is just, eh. Uh, there's no mo- I mean, there are moments of excitement, but it's basically like, a, what's that definition of war someone had? Uh, long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. I mean, that's kind of what baseball feels like to me is like a microcosm of war. So no, I'm still not high on baseball, but uh, there were other sports this week, thankfully. So I did have a pretty good week.
3: We're all here in the studio live and I'm really enjoying seeing Austin squirm while Kevin talks about baseball in, in, in such terms. Um, yeah, as a as a ADHD sports fan, I, I just cannot stand uh, sitting through an entire baseball game. It just, I ended up talking to, to people, sitting on my phone, which is what I normally do during a sports game. But at baseball, it's amplified because I expect to be entertained and I'm not. So I just, you know, as much as I love the sport because it's, American, it's an American tradition, I just, sorry, Austin.
4: Yeah, and I have to agree with Jeremy and Kevin. I'm not a huge baseball fan myself. I went to two Astros games, and I was bored out of my mind. So I am going to try to figure out baseball. I'm going to buy baseball for dummies, and maybe if I understand the game a little more, I'll enjoy it. But there's not a lot of excitement going on. There was not a, a lot of excitement with the the Rockets this week. The Rockets played the Sacramento Kings, and they didn't seem too thrilled to enter the playoffs after the game. Trevor Ariza, Dwight Howard, Michael Beasley just got their things and went Speedy Gonzalez outside of the (laughs) locker room.
2: It's worth noting, though, that during that game, James Harden did score enough. They left him in there long enough to score. I think it was 36 points, which got him to the uh, sort of arcane mark of 29 points, seven assists, six rebounds uh, for the season average. I guess uh, Michael Jordan, Oscar Robertson, and LeBron James are the only other players in NBA history to have recorded that stat line over a season. So that's something, but it's not much. That's, you know, pretty impressive that, you know, Harden has had such a great season
1: this year despite the Rockets' woes. And you kind of get into that a little bit later in one of our interviews with MK Bauer. But, uh, uh, I'm kind of disappointed you guys. I mean, you transition immediately from baseball to basketball, Can which basketball? just, just, yeah, it, it was ridiculous. I mean, I had no chance to even get a, a response in about baseball. So that's what I'm going to do right now. You guys are ridiculous. Like, I'm, like, highly offended right now. I mean, you just don't appreciate, you know, uh, as, as Dolores like to say, the finesse aspect of baseball. And, you know, come on. I mean, respect the game. There's so much exciting talent here in Houston right now. And we've got Tyler White, who's a rookie, drafted in the 33rd round, who's having a phenomenal season. We'll touch more on that with an interview with Evan Drellick a little bit later. But there's so much youth and talent here that this team is exciting. And I'm just disappointed at all my co-hosts right now. I think I might just make this the
3: Weekly Brew podcast featuring Austin <laughs> But That's what you do generally anyway. <laughs> I'm offended by the boredom that I feel when I'm at a baseball game. So there. Maybe that's just the people you're with fair enough <laughs> <laughs> but anyways uh jeremy uh you know
1: outside of insulting baseball and other things how, how was your week
3: uh well outside of insulting baseball i really didn't do much this week uh but no last night um ended up at a jack-in-the-box at three in the morning after uh, quite a time at grand prize bar you were there with me um it's just sort of an interesting place in general i walked in and there was a Probably seven foot tall guy in a pink dress and a blonde wig. Um, so I'm not going to say I had a disappointing weekend at all. I'm, I'm just, I'm still, still recovering a little bit. I got a, got a Vinci Americano here to get me going. But um, yeah, uh, what did you, what did you think from last night? I was definitely the
1: preppiest person there. Uh, so, uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting place. It was like time traveling back, you know, 30 years ago in the 1980s. Uh, oh my gosh, it's been 30 years almost since the 80s. That's crazy.
2: What uh, year were you born? 87. Yeah, okay. So it's not like you lived through the 80s and you're like reliving them in your mind right now. No, I'm just thinking. I mean, I used to grow up and think, oh yeah, it was just like not long ago. But
1: holy crap, like we're old. We're old. Except Dolores, she's still young. But, <laughs> but yeah, I thought this place was, uh, it was different. It was interesting. Uh, I would probably go back, but just not every weekend. But uh, Dolores, I guess you frequent this place as well?
4: Yeah, I've been there once and the pictures on the walls kind of freaked me out. Like every time you looked at them, it seemed like they were looking at you. It was really really creepy. But it was it was a good environment. Well, not a good environment. Was it? <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting environment to be in. It was really different.
1: Yeah, so definitely interesting weekend uh, visiting that 80s bar. But, uh, you know, speaking of other things going on in Houston this past week, uh, the U of H Cougars had their spring game,
2: and Kevin, you were actually there. What was that like? But that was a masterful segue, Austin. I just, I saw you. I saw the wheels turning as that as that went on there. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was something. You know, Ohio State logged about one hundred and one thousand, I think, at their spring game. Yes, sir. That is absurd, and it just speaks to how little there is to do there, I believe. But um, we did not have that. We had something like between three and 5,000. Joseph Duarte, uh, first of all, made fun of me on Twitter for asking what the attendance was, and then went on later himself asking what the attendance was to other people. So that's a little bit hypocritical there, Duarte. I hope you're listening, buddy. But um, it was not well attended, and it was incomprehensible. Uh, the defense won against the offense 74-72 in this new modified spring points format they're using, but it did seem to serve as a more legitimate practice style. I mean, the guys were playing with on the field, the guys they'd be playing with in real game situations. So it wasn't uh, as artificial as some of these spring games often are. And uh, Herman had some interesting points um, about the physicality of this Houston defense, which kind of flies in the face of what Houston has traditionally been about, which was high-flying offense and at best questionable defense. So um, I got some audio. I think we're going to drop that in right here for you.
5: One thing that is firmly ingrained in our culture is just to run and hit that's that's the name of the game. Run as fast as you can and hit somebody as violently as you can when you get there and um, we, we do that as, as good as any team I've been around and we're going to continue to do that because that's um, that's how this great
2: game is is won. So that has got to be encouraging uh, for Houston football fans uh, He does talk explicitly about violence which is kind of an interesting throwback to uh, our Steve Allman interview, uh, the writer of Against Football from a few episodes back. You should definitely go back and listen to that if you get the chance um, Football is a violent game but uh, it is a violent game, and in order to win it, you have to be sort of a violent team, and I think that Herman has these guys headed in the right direction defensively, and Greg Ward looks sharp uh, in the spring game for as much as he played, so I think that the sky's the limit uh, this year for this team. They face Oklahoma in the Abacare-Texas kickoff, first game of the season, and should they win that, I think it's a pretty clear uh, path to the college football playoffs, uh, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, you just definitely can't slip up against
1: UConn again this year. But definitely waiting for college football to return. That first weekend is just going to be phenomenal. So many great games on ESPN that week, and definitely looking forward to U of H taking on OU. Uh, I'm I'm really curious to see how they can match up with Baker Mayfield and uh, that OU offense, which has a lot of talent returning, especially at running, uh, especially with the running game. Uh, but uh, you know, when you're getting ready for college football, uh, you have to play in your tailgates, right? Absolutely. And you know, of course, you've got to have good drinks, good food, and good desserts. And so if you're you know, going ahead and planning right now for your September tailgate to watch that U of HOU game. Why not stop by We Desserts?
2: Because you want to plan ahead. You don't want to get snacks sight unseen. You want to sample these to be sure you're getting exactly what you want. And at We Desserts, you definitely would. It would be hard to describe in words how much we love our sponsor, We Desserts, and how much we love their desserts as well. They introduced a new one, which is the chocolate toffee cookie. And I don't want to brag, but, uh, but my family had some input into the recipe of this. We were very hands-on with the We People, and it has been selling, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, like hotcakes. My mom was the one that came up with the recipe. Don't make that face. It's hashtagged on Facebook. It's very clear. But uh, but you need to get to Wee and early in the day, too, because they've been selling out of these chocolate toffee cookies. They are uh, out of this world. You definitely need to try them. Uh, 3411 Kirby is where to find them. You can also search for Wee OUI on Facebook and Instagram and a number of other places uh, in order to figure out how to get there. But tell Penny and Jen that Wee, the weekly brew, sent you by, and you'll get a 10% discount off of your order. Yeah, we actually had a few listeners stop by the, the bakery this week. So thank you for uh, stopping by and giving
1: that 10% discount. And if you want to continue to follow our work, you can also do it online and our social media platforms. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now YouTube. Got some great content on there. Also, you can check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post our new podcast episodes there and kind of the show rundown every Monday morning. We've got a packed show on deck today. We've got interviews with MK Bauer, who if you've lived in Houston for the last 15 years, you've obviously seen his work. He's covered everything from high school sports, to the Rockets, to the Astros. So we have a great conversation with him. Also, we have Doug Drayback, who, if you're not familiar with him, he played baseball at U of H. He won the Cy Young Award in 1990, also played for the Astros. Great talent, great interview. Uh, We'll get into that here in a little bit. And we're going to close out the episode with a great interview with the Boston Herald, beat reporter for the Boston Red Sox, Evan Drellick. He actually was the former beat reporter for the Houston Astros. And again, the Astros play the Red Sox later this week. So we have a packed show on deck. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now, if you guys have lived in Houston for a while or followed Houston athletics, you might be familiar with our first guest on this week's show, M.K. Bauer of Sports Exchange. He's covered every sport in Houston from the Astros to Rockets to Rice Athletics, and I'd argue that he's part of the who's who on the Houston sports scene. M.K., thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. And the NBA dominated the news cycle last week with Kobe Bryant playing his last game. The Warriors setting the NBA record with 73 wins. Then you have the Houston Rockets, who fought for the eighth seed of the playoffs, knocked off the Kings to clinch a postseason berth with the prize of facing the best regular season NBA team in history. Is this a win for the Rockets, or does this end of the season really matter for the club?
0: It's more of a punishment if you think about it in the context of, of, of them playing a team that good based on what the Rockets were supposed to accomplish the season. the season. Look, it's a just reward. It it really is. When you loaf through the regular season, when you don't maximize your potential and and everybody kind of stands at a distance and marvels at your talent and you can never find a way to put it all together, get the pieces in sync and do something fantastic with those pieces in place, well, this is what you get. And you get a team that won 73 games and it's arguably the best team in in the history of the league, at least in terms of the regular season. And you gotta find a way to go out and kind of maximize your effort against them and do something spectacular. And I think that's kind of the the interesting thing here, is that there's so much dialogue about the Rockets having no shot. And the reality is that statistically they don't. But if they find the sort of gumption they need to put their attitude in in the same sort of coordination with their talent – then they can make a series out of it. But based on what we've seen this season, there's no
2: reason to believe that. I would say that the 500 season they've had and all of the sort of ups and downs, firing McHale early, just the turmoil has sort of obscured what a spectacular season James Harden had had. Um, obviously, he was second in the voting for MVP last year. Nowhere near that this year. And I don't think he's getting a, a lot of credit for the performance he's put on because uh, the other night I was at the Sacramento game. And of course, I guess he scored enough to uh, to be listed with Michael Jordan, Oscar Robertson, and LeBron James as the only players ever to have 29 points, seven assists, six rebounds uh, on on the average for the season. So, I mean, do you think that it's unfair to James and his reputation that um, the talk about this team has all been about how bad it is and not what kind of a season he's having?
0: Well, he's going to pay the price for it, especially in terms of all-NBA votes. I've been canvassing some of the people who are kind of um, unleashing their predictions at the stage, and I'm amazed at that he's actually getting in a third-team all-NBA vote. So, uh, to your point, there are a lot of people who feel as though, that, and this typically is the case, the star player is going to bear the responsibility for the performance of the team. And because the Rockets have been so inconsistent, because they failed miserably in terms of media expectations, Harden individually is going to get, um, you know, take take the flag for that, despite the fact that he's had a fantastic year offensively. And look, there's been a lot of conversation, again, about where he stands defensively and the fact that he's kind of taken a step back this year compared to where he was last year. But, but even that backsliding hasn't been so egregious that it should put him in a position to where people view there are six better guards in the league than him. That's outrageous. But it's, it seems like it's going to happen. And so, to again, to underline what you're saying here, he's the guy who's become the face of the franchise. As much as Dwight Howard, you Howard know, believes that he is 1A to James Harden's 1B, it's really on Harden. So despite the fact that Harden's played very well this year, ultimately it's going to be how the team performs as a reflection of his performance. And I think not only the MVP voting, where no one's even discussing him at all, I think when you look at where he's going to stand when the All NBA teams come out, and he's going to be behind Chris Paul and Steph Curry and Russell Westbrook and Damian Lillard and Kyle Lowry, and then that that mysterious sixth guy, either it being Clay Thompson or Jimmy Butler, I think that's what we see that, that people are going to punish him for with the Rockets that haven't done this season.
4: So Kevin McHale brought the Rockets to the Western Finals last year, and sadly, the Rockets fired McHale after 11 games this season. M.K., what are your thoughts on interim coach J.B. Bickerstaff? Do you think he'll keep his job?
0: No, I don't see how it's possible. I think regardless of what happens in this series against the Warriors, I think there's going to be some significant changes with this roster. And we're not just speaking about Dwight Howard opting out and testing the waters and free agency. I think there are going to be some bodies that are going to be moved. I think there are going to be some players that are going to be summarily let go, primarily Terrence Jones, obviously, and maybe Dallas Modena since they tried to trade him and failed in doing so with the Pistons. I think ultimately – we are discussing that many players leaving and the situation calls for a new leadership in terms of who's on the bench and it's difficult to sit here and, and fairly assess what kind of job J.B. has done this season because things have been so topsy-turvy but I don't think he's done anything significant enough to warrant getting the job again as his franchise kind of retools and moves forward into 2016-2017. I think ultimately they're going to look at where they are right now their personality, um, their camaraderie, the, the pieces that are in place change a lot of those pieces, figure out they need a new personality, and new philosophy in terms of how they approach things defensively, and that means bringing in an entirely new staff.
1: Who do you see as potential candidates to replace Bickerstaff, and will James Harden almost take on a LeBron-like role and having a say as to who the next Rockets coach will be, or will this guy have to manage Harden's personality?
0: Well, I'll address that second point you made first. I don't think James Harden has enough skins in the wall to say who's going to be his coach. I think LeBron James can do that because he's won two championships, He's a four-time MVP. He's clearly one of the best ten players in league history. He's not one of the top five. He's in a position to where he can make that sort of power play and get what he wants. James can't. And and as good as James has been since he's joined the Rockets four years ago, he's in no position at all to say who comes in. And I think that would be a huge mistake because I think mistake one was was hiring J.B. Bickerstaff as the interim coach for the remainder of the season when you believe your players turned off or tuned out Kevin McHale to begin with. So you can't have a coach come in here automatically kowtowing to James Harden. You have to have somebody who's going to come here and challenge him defensively, A, and then make sure that at that point, Harden understands who's in control of the team. Now, I realize it's a player's league, and now times out of the team, The players can get the coaches fired, but you can't put the, the, the franchise in position to where it's hard running things right now. He's not in position to do that. He doesn't have um, the sort of, I guess, gravitas to do that at this point in his career. So, Back to the first question. It's been a lot of talk, obviously, about Tom Thibodeau. But what's interesting to me is that the the Knicks job is open. The Sacramento job is open. You know, if there are any number of opportunities that Tibbs can look at and say, hey, this is a better situation. Minnesota came open, and there are a lot of people comparing their young three core players of Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and Zach Levine to the young threesome that the Thunderhead had when Harden was still there with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. So uh, if it's Scotty Brooks or Thibs or David Blatt or some hot name from college like Jay Wright, there are plenty of open jobs available. And the Rockets, whoever they go after, are going to be in steep competition for that person because the options are going to be abounding for whoever wants to pick the best situation for him as head coach.
1: There's one local guy that comes to mind for me, and that is Kelvin Sampson, who spent time a few years ago as an assistant coach for the Rockets before taking the U of H job. He seems to have a great relationship with the franchise, and many of his former players can be seen sitting courtside at Cougars games during the off nights. Is he a guy that is going to get a look by Daryl Morey for the head coaching position?
0: It would be a smart play. I mean, right? Because a lot of the, the, the success they had defensively initially was under Samson. Or at least he was the guy who was responsible for putting the system in place. But then they kind of make the improvements last year, even though he was gone to U of H. But this gets back to uh, the kind of owner that Les Alexander is and the kind of names he always pursues and what happened with this particular team and this particular coaching staff. And I think there's too much of a kinship between Samson and Kevin McHale and J.B. Bickerstaff to, to allow bringing him in and expecting wholesale changes, at least in terms of the personality of the team. I think if you're, if you're looking at a guy like Samson, ultimately you're going to be doing the same thing uh, personality-wise that you've been doing the last few years with the coaching staff you've had in place and I just get the feeling that the Rockets are going to really want to just turn a page on what they've been these last few years and go in a completely different direction, and I don't think that means Kelvin Sampson.
2: Speaking of a change in direction, Leslie Alexander has been pretty open about uh, reevaluating everyone top to bottom in this organization. And Daryl Morey's name was mentioned. I personally am a big fan of Daryl Morey. I know he's got some support in the city. But uh, what do you think of his job security at the moment? Has he done enough to, um, to ultimately keep that seat as we sort of look at this uh, organization, turn things over? Or is he a guy that we might see go elsewhere uh, in the offseason?
0: Well, Les just said the other day that, that more is going nowhere, and I, I firmly believe that. And, you know, I'm not going to be one to overreact to a bad year for Morey, and, and this year was was a bad year for him. I think no one could, could have foreseen Ty Lawson flaming out as much as he did with his team, even though there was some question as to what kind of guard you need to put next to James Harden in order for the backcourt to be fully functional. And I think we've come to understand fully now, if there was any sort of debate, there is no debate anymore. Harden is the point guard on this team. He needs the ball in his hand. You need a guard next to him who is a catch-and-shoot player. So that's the best course move forward. for. Back to more. That was a mistake. I think to an extent, um, signing Corey Brewer to an extension was a mistake. I think overall, some of the pieces you put around James Harden on this team, when you're a three-and-drive-and-free-throw team and you have a bunch of guys who don't make three points consistently, generally has been a mistake. But when you look at the, the overall track record of the GM here, the Rockets have not had a losing season in 10 years. they found ways to be competitive, to be very good, without ever fully rebuilding. He's very good at finding the pieces to trade for and keep his team afloat and moving forward in terms of being better than the previous year. And this year really is the first year they've backslid. So I don't think – I think any sort of discussion about moving Daryl Morey is an overreaction based on what happened this year. I'm not a a macro view of how good he's been as a general manager throughout the time with the Rockets.
4: Golden State has one of the best players in the NBA right now. Steph Curry, I think everyone can say he's the MVP. who might win it again this year. He's had 402 threes this season, and now the Rockets play the Warriors again, kind of reflecting on last year. They lost to the Warriors in the Western Finals, I believe. What are your thoughts on the Rockets versus the Warriors in the first round do you think they're going to get swept
0: they seem like statistically they have no shot because when you look at the warriors it's a team that a leads the league in scoring um leads the league in offensive rating its top five in defensive rating lead the league in assists lead the league in field goal percentage leads the league in fast break um, points per game all these sort of things are what the rockets do poorly they, they, they're the rockets are 21st in defensive rating they're 27th in turnovers per game they're bottom nine a bottom ten and um, points allowed on fast breaks. So you talk about a, a poor defensive team going against the best offensive team in the league. You talk about a team that doesn't do a good job of stopping dribble penetration going against a team that has Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston who are all very good at getting into the lane and kicking out to open three pointers. You're talking about a team that turns the ball over way too much going against a team that is proficient at scoring in fast breaks. So when you look at all of that, I understand why people are saying it's going to be a sweep. But my point is this. Despite the fact that the Rockets have lost 11 of the last 12 meetings with the Warriors, a lot of those games have been very close. And even last year's series in the Western Conference Finals, the Rockets weren't positioned to win games one and game two in Oakland. And I just think that if they play at their maximum level, and obviously there's no reason to believe they will based on what we've seen in the last 82 games, but if they play at their maximum level, they have the capability of at least pushing Golden State and making it interesting. If they don't, they're going to get swept.
2: You know, a lot's been made of playoff Dwight and sort of how he turns up the intensity in the playoffs when the lights are brightest or whatever. Uh, you know, obviously his his future with this team is uncertain or more than uncertain. I mean, he's almost certainly gone. But do you think we'll see sort of a resurrection of that uh, playoff Dwight character and see him really make an impact and maybe swing a game or two this series?
0: I think he realizes it's for his best good. If he's going to move on, and it seems pretty clear that he is, um, the only way he can salvage what's been a pretty poor year for him individually is to go bananas in the postseason. And I think that's obviously the best course of action for his career as he gets ready, it gets set to move on to another team. So uh, playoff, White obviously is contingent upon James Harden getting him the ball. And I think Harden is more than willing to get him involved, particularly against a team like this, when they're going to double Team Harden a lot, they're going to do a lot to get the ball out of his hands and make other players on the Rockets beat him, beat, beat the Warriors. And that puts the position, that puts power in a position to really be that guy. And as good as Andrew Bogut is defensively, I think we've seen before that Howard can have his way against Bogut. And I think we've seen, t- t- to the to the narrative of playoff Dwight, that he can step his game up to levels unforeseen in, in the postseason to perform very, very well. So I, I think we will see that. But, again, it's contingent upon his teammates putting him in position to, to-, to score. I- I- the only way Howard can dominate, and, and be advantageous for the Rockets offensively is for the other Rockets to make him um, that that person and, and, and put the personnel around him to make sure that he's having the kind of series that he can dominate and, and be the, the, the playoff the white that we talk so much about.
2: I think the elephant in the room for a lot of NBA uh, teams and front offices is Kevin Durant, where he's going to end up. We've heard some chatter. I think it's kind of died down a little bit about Kevin coming here to Houston. I mean, do you have a bead on, uh, on what he might do in terms of picking the Rockets, not picking the Rockets, or other free agent moves that might be advantageous for the team that Maury might make in the offseason?
0: I just don't see why he would come here. And, and I think a lot of his decision is going to be based on what happens this postseason. You know, to get back to an earlier discussion we were having about the Thunder, you know, they haven't been healthy in any given year since Harvard left. And this is the first time they will go to the playoffs fully healthy with Durant, with Westbrook, with Ibaka, with really a capable bitch supporting unit behind those three guys. And it'll be interesting to see what they do. You know, They match very well against Golden State. They didn't beat them this year, but they match up well against them. And I think I will be very interested to see if that series manifests how well they play. And I think based on that, Durant's going to make his decision. Uh, the best situation for him right now is to stay where he's at because that team is young enough and good enough to challenge in the Western Conference for years to come. That's what we all thought, even at the hard left. Um, there's a level of uncertainty that comes with him leaving, and who knows where that's going to be. Let's talk about the Lakers, but they're in shambles. I think the Washington Wizards are out the window now because they fired their coach. They've been as disappointing this season as the Rockets have been. Um, the Rockets, I just don't think it's, it's a good play for him here, because there have been a lot of whispers about his playing relationship with James Harden, set aside from his personal relationship with him, which is very, very good. So for all the chatter about what Durant's going to do, it seems like the Thunder, uh, far and away the best option for him personally, and even professionally. And then anything beyond that is going to be a crapshoot for him. It's going to be a huge roll of the dice in terms of getting to a closer level of winning a championship than he is right now. So that puts the Rockets in a position for settling for somebody in terms of the second tier, if it's an Al Horford or a Ryan Anderson, or whatever direction they choose to go it's not going to be the big, sexy name they've always pursued in the past few years. And that's going to be interesting for me because I think ultimately the roster rebuild or reconstruction is going to involve a lot of pieces moving out. What pieces do they bring in? Do they see anybody out there that's good enough that's going to warrant giving them a lot of money to bring in the pair with James Harden and reboot this team and move this team forward? I don't know if that player exists outside of Kevin Durant, and I don't think that player exists outside of, of, of Dwight Howard resigning here.
4: One of the guys that the Rockets brought this season was Michael Beasley. He's been a great addition to the team. He's, brought, he's made a huge impact. He's brought intensity. And he kind of came to Houston wanting to be that glue to glue this team together. But unfortunately, it's hard to piece up, uh, pick up the pieces for a team that has no chemistry. The Rockets have a team option to pick up Beasley's contract next year. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, well he already has a second year. Available on that deal, so I think that's 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 a done deal. In my, at least in my eyes, I think it would be smart to bring him back because what we've seen in spurts is that he's a he's so good offensively that he alleviates some of the pressure on James Harden to do everything for the team offensively. So I think if they're smart, they will realize that he's a good piece to have as they kind of rebuild, uh, retool around James Harden and maybe you know, Trevor Ariza or whatever else they, they keep, whatever other pieces they, keep, they they choose to keep. And that also leads into the conversation about Durant again because obviously Durant. And Beasley have a long-standing relationship, both being from the DMV coming out of the district, Maryland, Virginia area. And I think if, if there's going to be a sort of swing of the rant in terms of personnel, it certainly helps having a guy like Beasley available for him to pair with and I understand some of the great score on this team. But I think ultimately it's, it boils down to what happens with a lot of the roster this year. And this off season, as much as people have complained about not getting the draft pick by getting into the postseason and, and not having a lot to talk about this summer, there's going to be plenty to talk about because I think a lot of players are going to be gone. I think a lot of new players are going to be coming in. And even if they don't get the big fish in Kevin Durant, I think they're going to be very aggressive in terms of filling out the roster with free agents elsewhere and kind of putting a new team in place around James Harden for next season.
1: Now, MK, for those that have listened to the podcast over the last several months, I think everyone knows that both myself and Kevin are horrible when it comes to making predictions. My question for you is this. If you're picking an NBA champion, are you picking chalk, or is there someone who comes out of the East and West outside of Golden State in Cleveland?
0: Uh, I think the only team that can upset Golden State in the West is Oklahoma City. Uh, I think we, we've the one thing San Antonio has struggled with for years is athletic teams and quick three-point shooting athletic teams, and Golden State, is as good as San Antonio's been this year, it's just a poor matchup for them, so I don't see them beating Golden State. I think the Thunder can push them, but I don't think Golden State is going to lose to the Thunder. And I think, given everything that's at stake for them after winning 73 games, they understand they have to finish the job, and that I means repeating. So I'm picking Golden State in the West, and as, as up and down as Cleveland has been, a really mystifying team in terms of performance relative to the talent, I think they're going to be in a position to where if they're healthy, they understand what's at stake, and they get out of the East. I don't feel comfortable
5: picking Cleveland
0: to beat Golden State based on what we saw in the two matchups this season, but I think it's possible, and I think there will be a great amount of pressure on Golden State to finish the job. And I think if, if the Cavaliers are healthy, if if Kyrie Irving is 100% ready to go, unlike last year, if Kevin if Kevin Love is available for them as a third option offensively, and they have enough three point shooters to really challenge them, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Cleveland win a championship. I, it wouldn't shock me. I think Golden State's going to win it. But I'm kind of hedging my bets a little bit and saying that Cleveland has a very good chance of pulling off an upset and getting a championship this
1: season. Fascinating conversation. And just for the record, before the season, Kevin actually picked that the Rockets would come out of the Western Conference. And I'm sure he's not happy about me bringing that back up because it would take a miracle for that to happen. But, MK, we appreciate the conversation this week and for you joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And for those that are interested in following your work, where can they find you online and on social media?
0: Um, uh, my, my Twitter handle is voice, M-O-I-S-E-K-A-P-E-N-D-A I write for the Sports Exchange but a lot of what I do is kind of interacting between um, fans and just other people about what's going on locally in the sports scene and also movies and food so that's where I can be found and that's what I do.
1: MK, it's been great having you. Enjoy the rest of your week. Take care, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. As mentioned at the top of the show, this is a baseball-heavy episode of The Weekly Brew, and we're really excited about our next guest. Joining us on the podcast now is Doug Drayback, the 1990 Cy Young Award winner, 13-year MLB vet, former Houston Cougar, and the current pitching coach of the Mobile Bay Bears, the A affiliate for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Doug, thanks for joining us this week. Ah, uh,
6: Yes, you're welcome.
1: You spent the last six years as a pitching coach in the Diamondback system, but truly you've been a coach for much longer than that, as you were instrumental and uh coaching your two sons Justin and Kyle who Kyle is now with the Diamondbacks what was it that brought you back to professional baseball
6: well i probably most most of all i was probably bugging my wife at home being around all day long <laughs> but uh i you know it was just one of those things um, after uh, my oldest uh kind of uh quit playing uh, independent league ball and you know Kyle kind of got his career started uh yeah, you know, I just sitting around uh, just thinking of something to do or wanting to do stuff. I just can't sit around. So I'm like, well, there's one thing I know. Let's why don't you just get back into baseball and uh, try it on the other end and uh, try to be become a coach.
1: <laughs> now, this is your first season with the Bay Bears, and you have a right handed pitcher by the name of Yon Lopez from Cuba who uh, ranks as the sixth-best prospect of the D-backs farm system, according to Baseball America. Now, he had a remarkable spring with the Major League team and is impressed so far in two imp- appearances in Mobile. How do you see him projecting long-term, and are there any specific pitchers that you've worked with that might be a little bit underrated in terms of prospects but have a chance to develop in that big-wing arm?
6: Well, for Yohan, uh, I mean, he's definitely uh, got good stuff, uh, a good arm. Uh, you know, he's still getting accustomed to being here, um, and, you know, he's still he's still young. So, uh, you know, I, I can see, see him, uh, you know, having a chance, uh, if not next year, the year after that. A uh, few things that he has to refine and uh, get a little bit more consistent with uh, to, to move up to that uh, fourth level. But uh, I mean, it's in there. It's just uh, a matter of him uh, <clears throat> getting the reputi- uh, repetitions in, and just getting more consistent. So uh, you know, I, he, he look he could have a good future.
1: In terms of coaching and being a pitching coach in the in the minor leagues, what does your day to day job look like i mean are are you working more on mechanics film study with some of these athletes or does it kind of vary based on where they are in their progress
6: well being in double a this year uh you know I've been in uh, high a and uh, short season a ball uh, the last six years and there you get the younger kids either uh, from high school or out of college and a lot of it is uh Uh, more mechanics you also uh you know try to uh filter in uh uh, the mental part as far as learning how to you know read hitters read swings uh pitch sequences things like that but uh it's probably a little bit more mechanic uh mechanical for the younger guys and here double a guys have a better idea of themselves they've been playing for a few more years and uh the mechanics it's more of just kind of watching uh, maybe that one thing that they do that gets them off track and maybe just reminding them and then working on it aside or, you know, watching, uh, watching video. Uh, But now it's, uh, it's, I think a lot more of uh, knowing uh, and learning the hitters, uh, their weaknesses and strengths and, uh, and, and, basically pitch sequences, uh, to them and, and, uh, you know, just learning how to adjust from that.
2: So we, uh, we talked a moment ago about Kyle, who, uh, was a first round pick in 2006, uh, suffered some setbacks with Tommy John surgery, but recently was called up to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And obviously you're a proud father. You've spoken openly about, um, you know, your, your pride for your son and his talents, his abilities, I guess, how frustrating was it to kind of suffer through those injuries with him watching from afar? And then on the other side, how rewarding was it to watch him finally get called up and to be able to see him perform at the, uh, the highest level?
6: Well, it was, uh, you know, uh, after the first surgery, uh, you know, it's kind of hard for any kid, uh, you know, coaching, uh, you know, you have guys that uh, have to go through it. But uh, when it's your son, it's a little different. And, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, just kind of get you're getting going and things are looking good and uh, all of a sudden uh, you get a, a big pause in your career, knowing that it's going to be, uh, you know, kind of time-consuming and a lot of hard work to get back. And, uh, you know, he's done it twice. And after that second one, um, you know, it was just one of those things where, uh, you know, you, you'd feel bad for any kid, but, uh, knowing that, all right. And he had the attitude of, all right, well, it happened again. I know what I have to do. I know what to expect. And, uh, you know, he tried keeping it uh, as positive as he could. And he, he came back and, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, his arms feeling fine and, you know, watching him be able to get back up there, uh, was a good feeling for me and my wife, just knowing that, you know, he did have to put the, the work into rehabbing and coming back and, uh, you know, kind of changing, uh, the way he used to pitch. And, you know, for some, it's, it's hard to, Hey, this, this used to be the way that I pitched and this is what used to work. And, uh, you know, going through two surgeries, he's had to make uh, some changes in mechanics and things like that, but he did it, and, uh, uh, you know, he fought his way back up. Now, as I
1: understand, you actually gave him the call that he had been promoted, is that correct?
6: Uh, yes, uh, the AAA coach, uh, he he had given me a call and said, hey, he's, uh, he's getting called up, but, uh, you know, I thought since <clears throat> you're here, and he's with us now that, uh, you know, it'd kind of be special if, you know, dad gave him the call. So that, that was pretty nice of him.
1: That's a pretty cool moment. And with Kyle being called up recently, uh, he he's now playing with a fellow Woodlands product and Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, they were both uh, teammates in that 2006 national championship team. How special it is for him to kind of be reunited with Paul?
6: Well, he was looking forward to that. I know when he had signed with uh, Arizona, he was uh, – looking forward to, uh, you know, being around him again. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, uh, childhood memories and, and things like that. And, uh, he's gone as far as, uh, he's pretty much moved to Scottsdale and probably lives five or 10 minutes from Paul. So, you know, during the off season, they were able to hang out some and do things together. So, uh, you know, that, that that was good for him.
1: You won the Cy Young Award with the Pirates back in 1990. I mean, you had a remarkable season going 22-6, and six, ERA at 2.76. And when you were making your way through the system and kind of your early years with the Pirates, was that something that you ever envisioned happening in your career, was winning that Cy Young? And how memorable was that season for you?
6: No, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Some kids, you know, once you sign, uh, and, you know, that's one thing you – I don't know if that's one thing people think about. I think the one thing is you always dream about pitching or playing in the World Series. Uh, but uh, winning something like that uh, never never crossed my mind. Uh, even during that season, it it, it wasn't uh, a focus of mine, uh, especially towards the end of the season. It was just more of trying to keep doing what I was doing. And, uh, you know, we were in the, in the playoff hunt, so that, that was a the focus there. So, uh, you know, and a couple other guys that year had real good years also. And, uh, you know, I was just like, I still didn't think about it just because, you know, that was one of those things that, uh, you know, is a a special honor. And I just I just didn't think that uh, it would happen.
2: One of the other guys in that 1990 Pirates Club was Barry Bonds, of course, hitting 301 that year, 33 home runs, 114 RBIs, and he's since become sort of the poster child for what uh, a lot of people refer to as the steroid era, and there's a lot of hand-wringing in baseball, particularly among the writers, about whether to induct these guys, whether we shouldn't induct these guys, whether they belong in Cooperstown. I just wonder, what, having been there and played through that, and particularly being a pitcher during that era, what's your take on that, and what what about these guys that have been sort of um, sullied uh, with the steroid or PED accusations? Do you think that deserve a place in Cooperstown
6: well I, I've been asked that before and uh, you know I, I, I really haven't given an opinion on it uh, you know I think it's just one of those things that uh, you know it happened and uh, they've pretty much right now kind of you know made their mind up that uh, that wouldn't happen and whether they change it or not is going to be up to them and uh to be honest with you I, I don't think about it that much because uh you know I don't have anything to do with it so whatever happens or they decide uh you know it, it's going to be that way
1: now, kind of outside of your Cy Young season you made the all-star game in 1994 with the Astros and you know had quite you guys were having quite the season before uh the players went on strike and as a player, what was it like having that season cut short, especially considering, you know, the young talent that you guys had that year with Bagwell, Biggio, Caminetti, Gonzo, and then, uh, you know, Daryl Kyle? Uh,
6: that was tough because we were uh, <clears throat> we were playing good at the time, and uh, uh, I think we might have been, if I'm correct, like a half game out of first place. Uh, but, you know, it, everybody was having a good season, and team-wise we were just uh, – Clicking, and uh, you know, you had a good feeling, and then uh, <clears throat> once it stopped, uh, and then he found out that uh, you know it just it wasn't going to happen. It was it was tough just because uh, you know leaving Pittsburgh with the three-year run of playoffs. That uh, uh, now you know you, you had the feeling of all right, might have a chance to go back, and for some guys on that team, it would have been the first time. And uh, you know, it was. It, It was tough, but uh, it was one of those things that uh, happened, so you just dealt with it.
2: So Doug, I kind of want to pivot to your college career. I personally am a, a Cougar alum and I actually cover a lot of Cougar sports now. So you, um, of course, are a very big name around there. They've retired your jersey and so forth. So you were drafted out of high school um, but you opted to attend U of H. And so I'm curious what was the thought process there for you and and what would you recommend to pitchers who are contemplating whether to um, pursue a major league career immediately or whether they uh, want to go to college and try to get an education as they pitch as well. What sort of uh, what's advice you would give to young players, I guess?
6: Well, for me, it was just, I just didn't feel like i was uh i was ready and uh you know i like the idea of being able to go to school and get my schooling in in case uh you know something didn't happen um and it, i've had you know parents ask me and stuff and i it's hard to get i don't know if there is a right or wrong answer uh i think it just depends on the individual and if it's that's what you really want to do and uh you know uh the offer that you get is just hard to pass up that you may not ever get again uh you know then it's up to them to, uh you know is it, do we just take the chance now and if not then you know go to school afterwards uh but for some i uh, they just uh you know school is uh a, a big thing and you know, it's, if they're good enough, they're going to get drafted again, and they know that uh, you know at least I got my schooling in, and now I I have a chance to just concentrate on baseball. If it doesn't work, I've got something to fall back on, and it's just uh, it's just real, a real individual thing between uh, the kid and uh, the parents.
2: You know, it's interesting, as I was uh, preparing for this interview, I was reading some uh, some older stuff from the Daily Cougar where they talked to you. And I think in the 90s you said that one of the things you remembered most about being at school during that time period was not necessarily just the baseball that you played, but also the basketball that you watched with Phi, Slam Slamma sort of uh, taking over that campus during that time period there. And I wonder, I mean, do you, uh, this there's a the documentary coming out soon uh, about that era. How, how meaningful was that era of, of sport for U of H and, and what was it like to sort of be a, a part of it and also around um, that basketball team as well?
6: Well, it, I mean, it was a blast. Uh, you know, I can remember uh, uh, baseball practice. We'd try to get done as quick as we could, get back to the dorm, shower up, and then uh, make sure we got to the game to get some good seats. Uh, and that's kind of how how it was at that time there. Uh, you know, basketball was uh, make everything buzz around there. And, uh, it, you know, for all the sports, Uh, you know, people that they couldn't wait to get to uh, the basketball game just to watch, Uh, very, excuse me, very exciting. And, uh, you know, I was, and that's part of uh, the appeal that college brought to me was just going through that uh, uh, atmosphere and, uh, uh, you know, being able to, be part of uh, not only the baseball aspect of it and getting the schooling in, but uh, being part of the you know the college college scene with all the other sports.
1: I'm kind of curious. Have you had the chance to you know can stay in touch with Coach Whitting and what he's doing with the baseball program, with the facility upgrades, and do you have any sort of ongoing relationship with that program right now?
6: Well, I mean, I I talk to him uh, some, and then you know through email and stuff, and when I get a chance to go back there, I do. Um, and just to see, and he's done an absolute tremendous job as far as upgrading the facility, making it uh, uh, something that is very appealing for uh, recruiting and for the guys who go there. Uh, you know, that now they have a place that, uh, you know, they're proud to be in and call home, and he's just done a great job with it.
1: And we actually had a, a, user submitted question. Uh, he wanted to know what was your favorite ballpark to play in either at the college or pro level,
6: college level, you know, it was always, uh, we didn't do a lot of, lot of traveling, uh, back then. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was just always fun to go to UT or A and M, uh, one, it was close, but, uh, you know, they always had good crowds and, uh, you know, it's always uh, fun to play in front of a lot of people. And in in the pros, uh, there were probably a couple. St. Louis was nice. It was a nice stadium. Uh, uh, they had uh, good people at the game, baseball knowledge people. And, you know, we, we stayed a couple blocks from the stadium so you can walk back and forth. And then, uh, obviously, uh, Wrigley was one of them. Just with the history of it, uh, and, you know, people go nuts and you never know what the weather's going to bring to you there. And it was just a fun atmosphere. And Yankee Stadium was kind of special just because there, again, the history of it, knowing, uh, you know, the guys that had played there uh, and, and, you know, going out in the center field and, uh, you know, looking at all the plaques. Those, uh, those are special times.
1: Yeah, absolutely great ballparks, and a few of those are still on my bucket list. But, Doug, we, uh, we appreciate you taking the time out and joining us uh, this week on the podcast. And uh, we just want to uh, say best of luck this season with the Bay Bears and uh, best of luck to uh, Kyle with the Diamondbacks. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. Joining us now on the Weekly Brew is Evan Drellick, current Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Herald, who also covered the Houston Astros for the past two and a half years with the Houston Chronicle. Evan, how are you doing since moving back to the Northeast?
5: Well, it's fun living out of a suitcase uh, at, a, a, at a family member's um, house, but uh, otherwise, I'm doing great. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's nice to be it's nice to be back here. You know, I, I miss covering the Astros, but uh, you know. There's something special about Fenway and, and, and baseball in Boston.
1: So I guess just for our listeners who might not be 100 percent familiar with you, uh, you spent you know a few seasons here with the Chronicle, but you actually uh, came to the Chronicle after covering the Red Sox with MLB.com. What was it like for you to kind of get back up tr- to the Northeast, closer to your home?
5: Yeah, I mean all, I haven't been here a full week uh, quite yet, but uh, it, it's you know you don't you don't quite remember the atmosphere until you're back, right? Uh, you also don't quite remember how much colder it gets and how much you have (laughs) to put in your jacket everywhere. I've had multiple people uh, make fun of me because I'm I'm clearly not adjusted to the temperature yet. And uh, I'm walking around with a jacket that other people are saying, you know, I wouldn't need a jacket this big this time of year. Um, But it's, uh, you know, whereas Houston can have a little bit more of a football focus, uh, you, you see the the dominance of the Red Sox here, or at least the uh, equivalent dominance of the Red Sox, with everything else going on.
2: Houston's been accused of not being a baseball town, even though we have a team that you can arguably get excited about this season. And so, I wonder what is it regionally that contributes to that? Is it just the history of baseball uh, in Boston? Is it the lack of history here? I mean, what what accounts for that difference in enthusiasm between the two fan bases? Because you know, Boston fans are passionate, no matter how good the team is. No, and yeah, the,
5: look, the Astros do have a passionate fan base, uh, and this is a telling year in terms of attendance. Uh, I did a story at the end of last year talking the some Royals people because the Royals, when they, when they got good the first year in 2014, they didn't really see the uptick in attendance. It wasn't until 2015 that uh, you, you really saw the people start to come back, and, and that's why this year will be kind of interesting to watch that in Houston. But uh, what the Astros had gone through, I, I think, with the rebuild, with being off of TV, the team being so bad, probably created a unique situation, uh, that you, you're not going to find normally, but there's definitely a, a difference in the, uh, in the history of the two towns with the teams, right? The, the Red Sox are kind of this national, international brand, uh, and the Astros just aren't quite that. Uh, but I, the Astros fan base is, is, as, as I, uh, found in doing several podcasts and, and uh, on Twitter and, and and just all the interactions, you know, there are hardcore fans of Houston and, and baseball does matter there. What everybody told me was that in 2005, when that team was good, when that team was going to the World Series, they took over the city. But. Uh, you probably need to see them get to that point and and maybe this year after a kind of tough start they will get to that
1: point speaking a little bit more on that tough start for the astros uh, it seems like the offense you know the pieces are there but uh, one of the concerns early on is pitching Uh, the team era has not been the best also defense they've been struggling allowing you know several unearned runs uh, allowing uh, you know for example in thursday night's game against the royals george springer misplaying that ball out in right field allowing a few more runs to score that inning is that a concern for the team going forward, the pitching staff and also defense, or do you think it's too early in the season to make a judgment right now?
5: Both can be true. Uh, it, it, it's probably too early in the season to, to freak out or panic about uh, much of anything, and that goes to the Red Sox as well, who are having their own pitching problems. But, and this was, I think, the case for both teams, You know, I, when I looked at the Astros' rotation of the winner, uh, it seemed ripe for, for an addition. Uh, for them to go out and get somebody, and Pfister ended up being that guy, and maybe Pfister proves to be the pitcher he used to be in the past and ends up being this uh, great uh, high-upside, low-cost signing in the same way Rasmus was for the offense going into 2015. Uh, But, you know, you've got Keuchel, who's a fantastic pitcher. You can't expect him to really repeat what he did last year. It's just a signing season is really never something you can expect to be repeated. Uh, And then you you start to look at the the rotation depth at AAA, and you look at the other piece in rotation. You know, an injury here, Lance McCullers, for example, uh, or or somebody regressing there, the rotation thins out pretty quickly. And and you're relying on some repeat performances. You saw Colin McHugh struggle for the first half last year. Then he figured it out. He's always kind of described himself as a second-half pitcher for whatever reason that might be. So going into the year, I felt the rotation was, if there was a weak spot on the Astros, it, that's where it would be. Uh, and I imagine that come midseason, you might see them once again go after a starting pitcher the same way they did Scott Casimir and uh, Mike Fiers.
1: Uh, you know, speaking of that rotation, the Astros still expecting Lance McCullers to contribute once he comes back from the disabled list. And uh, one of the guys that uh, that, you know, I wouldn't say got away from the Astros, but Vince Velasquez, he had a remarkable start Thursday uh, against the Padres uh, through 16 strikeouts, no walks, you know, velocity up there between 95, 97. Uh, one of the big issues last year for the Astros in the postseason was consistency in the bullpen, and a, a lot of people expected Ken Giles to you know almost be that stopgap this year, potentially competing for that closer role. And obviously, he was traded in that five-person deal, Vince Velasquez going to the Phillies. Do you think there's any buyer's remorse right now seeing Giles struggle and Velasquez, you know, having such a great start and potentially being a guy who could have contributed in the starting rotation?
5: I'm sure in the moment it stings a little bit for the front office. You know, right after that start, I, I tweeted out a link to a story that was kind of a, a deeper dive on uh, on the trade and thinking in that trade and answering some of the questions around it. And, you know, people automatically take that out. Oh, you're criticizing the trade. No, I'm not. But it, it was interesting to, to kind of review uh, what the logic was there and... They look. You, you could have made an argument. They should have just tried Velasquez and Appel uh, as closer, right? They could have had an open competition and, and maybe mm-hmm. Velasquez ends up being that guy. Uh, you know, why are they giving up years of control of starting pitcher uh, for a relief pitcher when relief pitchers, we understand, are, are not as valuable just because of the number of innings? Uh, it, except at the same time, we are seeing this difference in. Um, the way release pitchers are valued now and I think leverage is being understood a little bit differently and kinda of that intangible side of what makes a good lead in a reliever what's interesting to me about Giles and I think it's the question and, and it was a question I addressed in the story but will we'll be the question going forward a little bit here um, you, you make the trade because you want somebody proven and he's got five years of control, he's got a little bit of a year, more than a year of service time uh, basically, you know, ha- half a season under his belt as a closer. Um, is he actually a proven commodity? I- and that's what I think we're going to see develop here. Does he write the ship? Does he uh, get it together? Is it just a little bit of a rough patch? Um, when the trade was made in terms of Velasquez, Velasquez and Appel are, are the two pieces you look at this trade and say, okay, this, is, this is, is who is going to make or break this trade. It's not Eshelman. It's not Oberholzer. They could be fine pieces. But it's always been about what's, what's going to materialize with Appel and Velasquez. And Velasquez is still the highest ceiling of, of the bunch. Uh, and you know, there, there were some concerns about his elbow. That's what led to the deal being revised a little bit there. Um, we had a few days waiting period. But, It always was going to kind of hinge on how does Velasquez do and how does Giles do. And and, uh, so far, it doesn't look great for the Astros, but you've got a lot of time to see this play out. Um, If you're the Astros, all you hope right now and care about is getting Giles uh, to a point where he's the guy that you thought you were trading for. And uh, there's no reason to believe that can't happen.
1: The Houston Astros will take on the Boston Red Sox this weekend in a series at Maid Park. And uh, you've, you've kind of had a unique opportunity to cover both teams. And, you know, when I just look at the two teams on the surface, it seems that there are a lot of similarities. I mean, both teams have uh, top-of-the-line aces, Cy Young, award candidates. Uh, you know, both teams have a lot of pop in the lineup. Both teams have great shortstops. I mean, you compare Carlos Correa, Xander Bogarts. But, you know, they're still struggling a little bit with the pitching staff as a whole. How do you see these two teams, both the Astros and the Red Sox, kind of, I guess, not only playing this weekend, but just moving forward through the rest of the season, kind of uh, where do you see their place in the the AL race this year?
5: They both should be contenders. I don't see, and I didn't see going into the season, an American League team that I felt was head and shoulders above everybody else. So the Royals are proving that maybe they should have been considered that. We'll see how... uh, you know, once again, it's just, just the beginning of the season, but probably too many people weren't giving Royals the Royals the due respect uh, they deserved for the last two years. But uh, you're right. I think that the, the similarities between these teams are there. Great offenses. Is the starting pitching there? Um, some some positive signs in the bull, bullpen. I, I I think you can uh, feel decently about both bullpens, even if you have an individual struggling. At a certain point, uh, considering they both went out and added closers over the off season, um, or well, <laughs> one of them added a closer, one of them added a, a, a now a former closer at the <laughs> Um So, I, I expect them to be to be there. I expect them to be in the mix, but it, it's very difficult to make much of a prediction beyond that. You know, I, I, the thing I kept going back to, and it, when I was still covering the Astros, and people would ask me about the Rangers and you know, which team's going to finish first, and I always point to, well, last year the discussion was who's going to finish last, the Rangers or the Astros, and then we had, how remarkable that we end up now talking about who's going to finish first, the Rangers or the Astros, but what we know from last year is that everything we're talking about now can be turned on head very quickly, right, if anybody knows that the preseason expectation is um, doesn't always work out or, or even come close to often working out it's the astros fan right now right after last year right. so I, it's I, it, it's very much an open question um as it always would be at this time of year
2: anyway Coming into the Boston Herald, your uh, future or now coworkers were very high uh, on you and tweeted a bunch of really complimentary things, which I think are well deserved. We're certainly sorry to have lost you here in Houston, but uh, I was reading over one of your recent pieces. It just mystifies me the Pablo Sandoval story: twenty-one pounds in twenty-one days, and it kind of working with this trainer he needs. I was wondering if you could kind of recap uh, for the listeners that story because it just it's bizarre to me to have to deal with that. I imagine frustrating for Red Sox fans. Yeah, you know the
5: Red Sox and the Astros. Um uh, on one hand, you, you, they're opposites in terms of how they've approached the market, right? The Red Sox have probably spent foolishly. The Astros haven't spent at all. You couldn't be more polar opposite in terms of free agency and things like that. Uh, and you know, you can argue that the Astros maybe should take more risks than they have and, and spend more than they have. And you should argue that the, the exact opposite for the Sox. Sandoval so far has been a terrible signing. Um, he's somebody who hasn't performed well and came into spring training overweight, Um, he's had this problem before. And I talked to the trainer uh, who, his name's Ethan Banning, he owns a gym in uh, Phoenix, and he works works with a lot of pro athletes, and uh, Banning explained his experience with Sandoval, and this was, they worked together before the 2011-2012 seasons, which are the only two seasons Sandoval ended up being an all-star. Uh, the last time they worked together was basically right before spring training in 2012, and that's right when Sandoval got uh, his first big contract. It was a three-year, 17.15 million dollar deal. Um, and Banning, at that point, kind of detected in, in Sandoval that uh, a feeling of, "Well, I you know, I don't really quite need to listen anymore," and things like that. But the, the Sandoval that Banning knew and saw was one who uh, had an eating problem, who who could not. Uh, control himself when kind of out of his sight when, when they were working together was, this was intense it was two days three days uh, and Sandoval's food is controlled by the trainer as well but uh, there was a, one time in uh, the offseason of 2011 he goes home for Christmas Sandoval does and gains 21 pounds in 21 days by banning the count and when he comes back this is before the contract uh, is done they're trying to hide him from the Giants because the Giants are keeping up with Sandoval's progress because they've mandated to Sandoval, uh, you know, he's got to lose weight. They'd done so in the previous offseason, too. Uh, so they did everything they could to, to, to get the weight off and keep him out of the Giants' sight, and he gets the contract. And uh, kind of the rest is history. He's, you know, he's gained weight since, and um, it's a big problem for the Red Sox. What do you do with him now? Uh, going forward, and it, uh, you got to believe in some way or another, they're going to lose a lot of money on this deal. Whether they end up releasing him, trading him, uh, releasing him sounds extreme at this point, but uh, it's it, it, there, there's a sunk cost here. Uh, uh,
1: certainly at this point kind of looking up and down the Red Sox roster I mean there are a few guys on the team that I definitely like I love Jackie Bradley out in the outfield but uh, for me the guy that sticks out is Xander Bogarts at shortstop I mean a great young talent he kind of started the year a little bit slow but he's come on strong as of late Uh, he had a great 2015 campaign it seems that both the Astros and the Red Sox have great shortstop obviously Bogarts and and uh, Correa two young talents you've been able to watch both of them play how do you think those two compare
5: Cray is a better player, no question. I, you really can't compare Cray to anybody except the greats that have come before him at this point in time, and uh, you know we're assuming he'll live up to that standard, but uh, it it's just they're just not in the same tier. Uh, and coming, coming back to the Sox now, you know, Bogarts was here when I left, he'd, he'd come up and uh, the 13th season won the World, World Series. Um, he, he looks noticeably stronger than he did then. He was kind of a scrawnier little kid. And, you know, you know, he's, he's not beefed up, so to speak, but you can tell he's, he's you know he's, he's gained some muscle, and, uh, you know lean muscle. Um, and he looks like a good player. But the, the player that, uh, in coming back, stands out even more is Mookie Betts. Uh, he, he, both in the field, at the plate, um, he's he's pretty much uh i think safe to say the best thing they've got going Uh, which is no knock on bogarts but um the most talented young player that that i've seen so far with the Sox is Betts, and uh you know watching him in right field with jackie bradley in center he's a great defender uh hasn't really hit so much but uh it's you know a little bit like watching uh and springer or uh, gomez and and springer and, and uh uh, I, I've had a joy of of, of good outfields uh, <laughs> in, in recent
1: times. Speaking of, you know, young players that have kind of surprised Tyler White, I mean, he's a guy that was, uh, you know, found in the 33rd round of the MLB draft, and uh, he's had a remarkable start to his season, won the AL Player of the Week the first week of the season. How important is it for him to continue not necessarily hitting at an unreasonable clip at, you know, 500 for the rest of the year, but just playing consistent first base for the Astros, and do you see him uh, keeping up at this hot pace, or do you see him kind of coming back to earth a little bit as pitchers begin to adjust?
5: Oh, sure, I'll come back to, to earth a little bit, but uh, the thing that's always made White impressive and the reason the they, they Astros love him is he, he just keeps hitting. Every level you stick him at, he hits, and uh, he's worked, he worked, for example, over the winter to better catch up to high heat that was the focus of his there um you know his his body's improved since he's become a pro player and he's he's just this great story uh you know it's it's watching him hug his mother while his father's patting him on the head alongside the third base railing at the brave spring training complex toward the end of spring um It's a great moment to to see this for a 33rd round pick who signed for $1,000 and who pretty much nobody was interested in. I I did a phone interview with him last year, um, late in the season. I I was in Oakland at the time um, with with the team. And talking to him then, you you could kind of hear the humility, and um, uh, he talked about how Nobody was interested in him. He he had talked to it was the Giants, if my memory serves right, uh, a little bit. But he didn't know the Astros were interested in him. And it, it's a big credit to uh, to Tim Bittner, the scout uh, who signed him. And it's it, it's also a very big credit to Sigma Del who, um, you know, is, is heavily involved with in the Astros draft process. Who's kind of famous for being the ex NASA employee uh, that the Astros brought in. Who had formerly the title director of decision sciences um now he's a special assistant um uh but uh, sig was a proponent for for taking um tyler and it, it reflects well on uh, kind of the overall player development uh process i mean look the guys made it to the big leagues before uh, uh the, the first overall pick that year yeah
1: that's March. crazy <laughs>
5: um uh, you know it's it, it's uh It's a great story, and I I, I don't think there's any reason to think he he won't be able to keep hitting at a good level. Uh, Of course, he's not going to keep up the crazy, crazy clip and they'll figure out some holes, you know, that, that always, that always happens in
2: this game. I heard you, uh, on, uh, stepping off the bag, I guess is the name of the podcast that you've uh, joined to become a part of with Boston, part of the Boston Herald radio network. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. And I was just curious what, uh, you know, cause we started a podcast, obviously we are passionate about podcasting. What uh, made that appealing to you? And what do you think is the value of having that sort of outlet?
5: Well, I just want it to be more like Tim Britton and Brian McPherson of the Providence Journal. (laughs) I'm saying that so so that I can now make them listen to this. They run a great podcast called Super 2 up here. Uh, Honestly, it was something that the Herald had considered creating before I got here. It wasn't uh, something that, that was a direct result of my arrival or anything like that, but uh, the Herald and and you see other places as well. The Herald has a radio station uh, that uh, ended up getting them uh, innovator of the year award. Um, you you've seen the multimedia push for a long time, right? And it it's uh, it's not too much trouble. I think it's engaging. I hope it's engaging for fans to have just another um, way to connect with the media and the team, right? And for the same reason you guys are doing what you're doing, I, I guess would be. Uh, why, why are you guys doing this?
2: We definitely enjoy talking you and sports, so I, I think that's it for us. And Austin, of course, is not uh, involved in sports directly anymore, so this is an outlet for him to do that. And I'm trying. I'm on the come. I, I think I'm an up and comer. If I have to say so myself, I think that's one reason we're doing it. So, and we love connecting with people who listen. I imagine the same is true of you, Evan.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a nice. It's a nice. It's a little more free format. You can kind of. Uh, ramble on about certain things and if i'm good at something it's rambling so it's, it's a nice <laughs> nice outlet for me
1: and i guess one last question before we let you go uh this past week uh, kobe bryant had his farewell in los angeles and there was a lot of kind of hype surrounding that uh, one guy who's i don't i don't know if they're gonna have the same type farewell tour in boston is uh you know big poppy david ortiz what what does he mean to the community in boston and do you what is what is his lasting legacy going to be in that community?
5: He's one of those irreplaceable type of personalities, right? Uh, kind of, I think when you talk about sports legends, he will be that, and has already become that in Boston with uh, uh, all the clutch hits over the years. Get into any discussion about clutch you want, I'm not here to debate that, but you know the hits would. If you are going to say that a hit is clutch, David Ortiz has collected uh, many of those, and uh, you look back on what he said after the marathon bombing, and grabbed the mic and uh, had had some colorful language that the the fans um, in the city really appreciated at the time. Um, He's just kind of this outsized character, right? There's so much charisma there to go along with this this great baseball ability. And, um, uh, you know, he's a little bit of a uh, surprise story himself to some degree, right? You know, he he didn't – the the twins – been worked out there and then he comes to boston and then he and boom you know he, he develops who he is so i do expect a farewell tour you know uh opening day here i wrote that the, these tours are are overwrought i i personally i didn't include this in the story i've included other things i think athlete worship in general is a dangerous thing mm-hmm. um, they're just people they really are they're, they're not above um they might be above you in pay scale and, and notoriety but i think there, there, there can be a danger in um too much veneration for uh, uh for, for 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 your stars there's a line between um you know having a favorite player and, and appreciating them and uh just holding them on a different pedestal that uh you know i, I think develops sometimes and you can understand why it does develop but uh you know I, I I thought the Red Sox did a good job on opening day because they they had his daughter come out and and sing the anthem as a surprise. Everybody says it's a surprise. So you know we can have a conspiracy theorist that says no, Ortiz knew it was coming. The daughter says surprise. He says it's a surprise. Um, and you could hear Ortiz talk with kind of this real emotion about it. So whereas most these fair world tours are end up being really repetitive, and I'm sure it's going to be this way with Ortiz, where you just you know, you're watching it every day it might make your eyes roll Um, but you do have a chance in there for some nice moments where you do provoke some genuine emotion um, and and kind of get a different reaction out of a person it's not going to be every day but I did think they pulled that off on the first day here at Fenway.
1: Yeah, great conversation here with uh, Evan Drellick, of the, again, the beat writer for the Boston Red Sox at the Boston Herald. And Evan, for you know those that are in Houston or in Boston and those that are interested in following your work and kind of uh, you know following the Red Sox throughout the season or any nuggets that you have from the Astros, where can they find you online and social media?
5: Uh, Twitter and Facebook are the best. It's Twitter.com slash Evan Drellick, which is uh, D as in David, R-E-L-L-I, C as in Charlie H. And it's uh, just Facebook.com slash
1: Drellick, just my last name. Perfect. Well, Evan, we definitely appreciate you taking the time out and uh, joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And, uh, you know, hopefully the uh, the Astros and the Red Sox will be able to, uh, you know, meet in the playoffs and we'll be able to chat again in October.
5: Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime. I really appreciate it.
1: Closing time. Again, this is episode 39 of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and I, I absolutely loved today's interviews. And uh, I think the two that I enjoyed probably the most were the baseball ones. Uh, I know that might you know come as a shock to some of you guys, uh, but uh, you know, speaking with Doug Drayback, who I actually uh, you know first met when I was probably about five years old at a Fuddruckers getting an autograph. I was uh, he had just been signed with the Astros, and I was wearing a Craig Biggio jersey. And I remember him asking me. Um, do you know whose jersey that is? And my first response was, It's mine. <laughs> <laughs> I had, you know, I, I was I was like five years old. I didn't really understand what he was asking me, but I, I thought it was cool. But uh, yeah, thanks to uh, Doug and the Bay Bears for, uh, you know, uh, thanks to Justin from the uh, media relations office for the uh, Mobile Bay Bears for, uh, you know, kind of arranging this interview. And this is actually the second time uh, that, that I've been able to interview someone from uh, the Diamondbacks organization. The other one was Paul Goldschmidt. And if you follow baseball, you know that he's one of the, the hottest young stars in Major League Baseball right now. He's the face of the franchise for the Diamondbacks. Uh, a few years ago, I was able to interview him. And right as he got called up uh, to the majors. And again, uh, I believe that was Morgan Ballard from the Diamondbacks Media Relations who set up that uh, interview. So, uh, you know, thanks to the Diamondbacks organization for uh, being kind to, uh, you know, not only myself with Vite Magazine, but now myself with the Weekly, Brewcast pod, the Weekly Brew Podcast. Uh, so great interview there. Also, Evan Drellick absolutely killed it.
2: Yeah, he was great. Uh, obviously, I enjoyed the M.K. Bauer interview. i um, been following his work for quite some time. He was articulate, engaging, interesting, and as low on the Rockets as anyone else. So he certainly has a beat on what's going on in the NBA playoffs. And of course, we had the interview before we had uh, the pleasure or displeasure of watching Saturday's game uh, against the Warriors. But uh, M.K. also killed it. Great slate of interviews this week. And, uh, and honestly, let's give ourselves some credit, too. I think we do a terrific job. And I think we don't pat ourselves on the back enough. So... Thanks to you guys and thanks to myself for being the kind of person that I am doing the job that I do.
4: Yeah, and I got to agree with Kevin there. MK was one of my favorite interviews as well. MK is a good friend of mine. He's kind of helped me in this new sports industry. Um, You guys might not know this, but I've only been in the sports industry for about six months. So uh, yeah, MK has been a lot of help. He's introduced me to a lot of people and he brought a lot of content on our show today. So we are really thankful to have him.
2: God, I feel so unsuccessful next to you every time. I've been doing this a lot longer.
4: Yeah. The power of networking, it works.
2: Finesse, girl, you got it.
3: It's not a competition, Kevin. No, it's definitely a competition. She's like dominating uh, you right now. Re-
4: I know,
2: it's really apparent.
3: <laughs> I actually really enjoyed recording this. Uh, apart from Kevin's excessive self-aggrandizement, I actually really enjoyed the Evan Drellick interview. Um, I Actually, I'm, I've been toying with the idea of going to an Astros-Red Sox game here. Uh, This next week so um, I think I actually might do that and I will report back how horrible the experience was and if I could maybe find it in me to enjoy it just for a moment, if just for a well, you know,
1: I, I've been outnumbered this entire podcast. Everyone here has been hating on baseball, and it's really upset me. But luckily, we actually just had a guest walk into the We Desert studio who kind of wants to support baseball a little bit. And you might remember him from the uh, Richard Justice interview that we had a few weeks ago. And Andrew, tell these people that they are just crazy right now.
3: Well, I mean, baseball is America's pastime. So I guess if you're not into America, maybe that's, maybe that's something to do with it. I'm not sure. But... I, you know, I, I think right now Astros struggling uh, three and with a seven right now. They really, four and eight. Four and eight. Um, not really many expectations, but had a tough schedule so far. I think, you know, get on board right now. You're going to be heavy you did later.
2: Plenty of room on the bandwagon, I hear. Yeah, and you guys aren't even close to getting on that bandwagon. So. <laughs> it, needs be- nah. it needs to be a different sports bandwagon for me. It's just not... It's just not fun. What is it, like three, three and a half hours sometimes to just watch the same action performed over and over and over again? You never talk about the pace of the game. That's rule number one.
1: Actually, no. Rule number one is never participate in the wave. Okay. Is that a rule? Why is that a rule? I just hate it. I think it's people that are bored with the game of
2: baseball. Look how many people are bored. It's a whole stadium full of people that rise up and say, We're so dang bored almost swore there but yeah it's it's very clear how bored people are with baseball and I, if they want to do the wave i encourage it they want to get on their phones they want to drink they want to do whatever they need to because they deserve some sort of release from what they're having to witness
3: i think i might bring a chess board this next week what do you think
2: i think you're bullying me into taking a more hardline stance than i actually have you've really turned me into a hater here i'm not i'm more indifferent but just for the purpose of podcasting
4: and i've definitely seen a lot of media people on their phones playing that Words with friends or something during the game. So we're not the only ones not into baseball.
2: Wait, wasn't word with with friends wasn't that popular in like two thousand ten? Are people still playing that? Absolutely people are still playing. People who know words, people who know words and have friends are playing words with friends. It's in the title. Yeah, a lot of people did. That actually ruined it and that's why it's not as popular as it once was for sure. I've had many issues with that myself. Issues with people cheating against me, not issues (laughs) not like I struggled with cheating. (laughs) Right, right, of course. Definitely, uh, definitely interesting episode today.
1: Uh, great conversation with all you guys, and it's uh, it's always fun to record together. Um, but you know, there is one thing that we are disappointed about, and you know, we love our listeners. There are thousands of you each week, but um, we don't have any more iTunes reviews. And it's been what three weeks?
2: It's been at least three weeks. I think actually, our last review that we had was was given way in advance of the episode, so it's actually been like four calendar weeks since we've had an inter- or since we had a, a, a iTunes review come up, a new one. So we're stuck at thirty nine, which is. Terrible because everybody likes round numbers. I'd love to see us get to forty there. It would really make my week. So I, my quality of life and mental health has been declining steadily and even now rapidly since our last review. So I would encourage people to get on iTunes, subscribe to us there. It's the best way to get the podcast. And also while you're there, it's very easy. Click ratings and reviews and leave a five star review with like a little sentence or two, just telling us what you enjoy about the show, uh, what you'd like to hear on the show. I got to tell you, if you give your input via iTunes review, we take it very seriously. Um, but another thing that has been great is we had a lot of people share our content on the last two weeks on facebook um we really appreciate guys who subscribe on facebook and who share on their own uh, personal walls it brings in new listeners we love that that's the best way to help the show grow and it's uh, it's actually free so uh shout out to all the guys who did share our stuff the last two weeks you guys are the hero listeners this week the hero that you know we deserve right and that we need both yeah hero we deserve hero we need just like uh was a dark knight quote i think so very good yeah. i'm proud of you all right um, yeah, we're throwing a little bit of uh, DC. Is that DC or is that Marvel? Oh, my God. I'm no longer proud of you. DC, of course. Are you trolling me, or did you really not know that?
3: Dawson's credit. We've been
2: trolling in the entire episode. But I can't tell. I'm furious right now. Were <laughs> you serious? Of course.
1: <laughs> Jesus. So, again, this has been episode 39 of the Weekly Brew Podcast, and I've definitely enjoyed uh, recording with all of you this week. And, uh, again, thanks to MK Bauer, Doug Dreback, and Evan Drellick for joining us on the show. Uh, you know, my goal is not only for us to get more iTunes reviews this week, but... Uh, you know, so Kevin's life could be better, but also that you know someone can make a difference in my co-host's lives and you know make them enjoy baseball. I don't know. That That's my hope for the week. Good luck. Alright, and if you can't get enough of the content, you can definitely uh, search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now YouTube. Also, you can find all of our work each Monday morning at weeklybrewcast.com but we had a fun episode. I hope everyone at home, at work, on the road, in the gym, or wherever you might be listening enjoyed this show. For my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxson, and Dolores Lozano. My name is Austin and and we'll see you next week
2: and guys remember no matter what you're doing this week or where you are brew responsibly you've been listening to the weekly
4: brew